Everyone seeks legitimacy. We desire to feel worthy, to overcome an internal sense of wrongness and to be enough. Don't you? God wants these for you too. The problem is most people try to get them in ways that make things worse, not better. I'm here to tell you that everything your soul seeks is easier to get than you think. This is the Shut Up Devil Show, and I am Kyle Winkler, author of the book Shut Up Devil, creator of the Shut Up Devil app. I'm all about shutting down the lies and the struggles that keep you from thriving in God's design for your life. I'm here to do it every single week with a live online audience. I'd love for you to join us all live sometime Thursdays at 8 p.m. Central at kylewinkler.org slash live. And by the way, don't forget wherever you're watching or listening, tap that subscribe or follow button that you never miss a show. One morning around 6 a.m., a message popped up on my phone. It said, Kyle, I need help. It was a message from someone who knows me well enough to know that I'd be wide awake by then, but also someone who knows to try me with a text before a call. That's a good friend there. I quickly replied, what's up? And then I waited. And I watched that little typing indicator appear and disappear on and off for like a minute or so. So I could tell that he was trying to figure out how to say something. And then it came through. He said, I was updating my LinkedIn profile last night, but just stared at my computer for hours. I was relieved that it wasn't quite the emergency that I thought it was, but I still thought it warranted a call. So on the phone, he told me that he spent the entire night trying to update a single field in his profile, the headline one. Some of you know that one. It's meant to summarize your entire life, basically, in a sentence or two. Now, as an author, I've learned a thing or two about writer's block. So I tried to get his thoughts to flow. I prompted some questions. I reminded him that he earned a doctorate. I reminded him that he's lived across the world. That he's been honored as a top performer at his job. And those were just a few of the things I knew about. So I said, you've, you've got plenty to put on a resume. What's the problem? He said, that's not the problem. It's that I've feel like I'm not enough. It just all feels not enough. Now, when you hear his worry, do you think, what does he have to feel lacking about? After all, before he was 40, he lived across the world, earned the highest level of education in his field, was awarded at his job. Most people see someone like him as the definition of enough. Most people also Think of famous people as the definition of enough, too. Yet despite their accomplishments, accolades, awards, affluence, these people struggle with this insecurity as much as anyone else, oftentimes more so. I think it's something I heard Tom Hanks say in an interview. You know him, right? He's been in like 70 movies. It's said that he's earned like 400 million from all of them. Most of us would consider half a percent of that as enough, right? Well, he admitted that he still doubts himself. He said, no matter what we've done, there comes a point where you think, how did I get here? When are they going to discover that I am, in fact, 
a fraud. It's one of the most human things to seek legitimacy. We yearn to feel worthy, to overcome an internal sense of wrongness, to be enough, right? We all do. These aren't evil wants. As I said at the beginning, God wants these for you too. But because of our shame nature, we often try to attain them in ways that God never designed. Achieving fame and fortune is one way that people attempt fulfillment. Others believe earning a title, an education, being married, having children, owning a house will make them somebody. Some measure their meaning by their involvement and service. Yet, a lesson we can learn from many celebrities and high achievers is that no amount of performance or what it achieves can quench that want for worth and rightness and significance. I'm not saying that you shouldn't pursue those things. If you desire them, go for them. But see them as they are. Fruit from you, not the root of you. They don't make you. They don't measure anything about you. They don't make God any more pleased with you than he already is either. Many throughout history have learned this lesson the hard way, me included. I spent my time, talent, treasure, stressing out, nearly burning out, trying to prove what Jesus already proved. Just this week on the Shut Up Devil Show podcast, I shared my story from potty training until today. I called it losing my religion. I talked about a moment at 17 years old when I was asked to stand up in the middle of a church of like a couple hundred people or so because the guest speaker had a word from God for me. And I stood up and I was shaking in my boots. I'd just been born again for like a year at that time. I didn't know what was going to happen. This was all new to me. I was afraid that he was going to expose my every sin in front of everybody. Didn't want that to happen. Now, thankfully, he didn't do that. Nobody who really hears from God would do that because God doesn't do that. The man affirmed something in me. It was a call to ministry that I'd started to sense just months before. And he rattled off some Bible verses and he ended up saying, this was like his concluding sentence, you're the church yacker. Now, if you know much of my story, which I share in all my books, pretty open about it, I was not a yacker back then. I was shy, insecure, and outcast. Nobody would have called me a yacker. But this guy did. And he claimed that God did. And I decided to believe it. But for it to become true, I believe that I had a lot to prove and perfect first. And that was the start of the next decade of my life that almost burned me out. At the time, Nobody explicitly told me that I had to prove myself, not my pastor, not my youth pastors. I think I got it from 
a mixture of influences, culture, definitely. I mean, do to get is the philosophy of the world, right? The world spins on that, literally. My childhood religious tradition played a part too. It was ingrained into me from birth that God is pleased when you meet obligations and discipline yourself. And some of you know that kind of programming can take many years to unravel completely, if not a lifetime. And add to that a deeply seated rejection complex that convinced me that acceptance comes from accomplishment. I was inclined to performance-based living before reading any books or hearing any sermons. Kind of born into it, right? But then I did read books, and I heard many more sermons, and many which did kind of reinforce this idea in me. And I talked a lot about the ups and downs of this, and I definitely have over the last couple of months of messages. Some days I felt good. Most days I felt like a total fraud. I didn't know it back then, but that's the end result of anything that's performance-based. There's no other possible outcome. Flesh is designed to fail, and relying on it is designed to bring you to your breaking point. You might remember my message, Why Diets Fail. That's in the podcast as well. Talks about how that works. How relying on flesh is designed to bring you to your breaking point. Now, how long it takes for someone to get there to their breaking point, that varies, of course. I've found that the timing comes down to how long it takes for somebody to feel that they've exhausted all their options and to get real that those options didn't work. For me, it was about a decade after I was saved. At first, when every super spiritual method in the book didn't produce what I expected, I thought something was permanently wrong with me. I feared that I was unworthy of being a child of God, much less of this calling. I almost gave up on it. Almost. During one of the lowest, if not the lowest point of my faith journey, a time when I was feeling exceptionally worthless and was just days away from quitting. I happened to read a book that highlighted John the Baptist's proclamation, declaration, what he said at Jesus' baptism. If you've been with me recently, you probably can quote this with me. John 1.29. Say it with me. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, this wasn't a new verse to me. I was almost finished with seminary by that point. But the circumstances of the moment made me see it like I never had before. It brought me face to face with the cross. Now, what all happened is another story entirely. I detail it in my book, Silent Satan. But suffice it to say, in a matter of minutes, I beheld that there was so much more to what Jesus did at the cross than I ever knew. You see, as long as I can remember, I understood that Jesus died to forgive my sins. At 16 years old, I was reacquainted with that truth in a very personal way. 
Still, almost all I really knew about the cross is what it meant about my past. I never considered what it meant about my present or my future, aside from getting me into heaven. But this encounter set me on a course to see that Jesus accomplished everything that the human soul seeks. First, I was struck by the extent to which Jesus went for humanity. I always knew he suffered. There was a statue of him hanging on the cross at the front of my childhood church. I knew that. But in this encounter, I beheld the brutality of it. Then I beheld the unconditional love of it. It all made something that Jesus did from the cross so poignant to me. Look at Luke 23, verse 34. I want you to hear his words here from the cross. He's speaking over the people who put him there. He pleads, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. Do you see the magnitude of grace in that? In response to the mocking and the torture he received from these people, he forgave them. Receiving no apologies, he forgave them. Getting no promises of change, he forgave them. But not just them. He put himself through the mutilation of the cross for everyone, past, present, future, with no conditions or expectations. While we were yet sinners is how the Apostle Paul put it. Why would Jesus do that? Romans 5.8 But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. But God proved his great love for us. Let me put it personally for you. Jesus went to the greatest extreme to show that you were worth something, just as you are, before any accomplishment, accolades, or effort on your part, just by virtue of your existence as someone made in God's image. The cross is the ultimate proof of your worth. The thought of that brought me to tears after my encounter, first on my living room floor, then at times while driving over the next few weeks. I remember driving with sunglasses on cloudy days just so passersby didn't see my spontaneous sobs. It was that huge for me and that healing. But it was only the kickstart to accepting what Paul added is an even greater benefit. The next verse, Romans 5, 9, And since we have been made right in God's sight, by the blood of Jesus, you will certainly save us from condemnation. We have been made right in God's sight. Now, I have a strange analogy here. It might sound strange at least, but stay with me. When it came to Jesus and me, I always thought of myself as 
a countertop and him as a cleaning spray like Lysol. I knew that because of the cross, he was able to cleanse sin, and I believe that he did cleanse me of my sin at my salvation. But if your countertops are anything like mine, they don't stay clean for long. For one, dust collects without my consent, just from the environment. But I inevitably splatter pancake batter, orange juice, and bacon grease when making breakfast, and dinner time is worse if I can be candid. Even if I were to attach a can of Lysol to my hip and spritz and scrub with every mess, it wouldn't be possible to keep them clean entirely. Spritzing and scrubbing for every mess is essentially how I use Jesus. When I failed, I begged, please come clean me again, Lord. The problem is it didn't take long to feel dirty again. If not because of myself, then because of the environment. So rinse and repeat. And that regimen got exhausting. Mostly because it never satisfied that internal feeling of wrongness in me. In fact, sometimes it increased the feeling that I was a complete and utter fraud. But it's all I knew to do. Here's a review of like the last two months of messages in one simple sentence. Humans are incapable of perfection and God knows it. Revelation right there, right? First, we are born with an inherited sin nature. Secondly, flesh fails. Thirdly, we live in a fallen world. So if you'll allow me to say it this way, we are darned if we do and darned if we don't. This is why God sent Jesus to do more than cleanse sin every time we ask, or some put it to enable us to keep a short sin account. 2 Corinthians 5.19 says that because of the cross, God no longer counts our sins against us. And those are the Apostle Paul's words, not mine. What this means is that your failures as a believer don't collect in some account or on some countertop until God wipes them away again. That's really Old Testament. That's what the blood of bulls and goats does is what Hebrews said. Jesus did something better. It is far more than being let off the hook for our humanity. Because of the cross, Jesus provided a way to change our humanity. Paul described what happens upon belief as a kind of identity change. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.17. You know this verse. Anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. The new life has begun. Now, still a person. And still capable of failure. Just not defined by it. As a believer, you are defined instead by something else. He says it a few verses later in verse 21. Here's what it is. 
For God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. There it is again. Rightness. In Christ, you are a right person. Not until your next mistake. Not until your next sin. But forever. Now, if you're baffled by that, you're not alone. People have wrestled with this since Jesus ascended to heaven. The issue for many people is that being made completely right by faith alone and forever seems too easy on our part. Yet Paul insisted that this effortless change is exactly what Jesus came to provide. I mean, I could rattle off many more scriptures that says we are made right by faith. We are made right by our belief. On and on and on Paul goes. He devoted a whole lot of his ministry to defend and explain the wonder of it. He especially spelled it out to the Colossians. They were being challenged by Jewish leaders that they needed much more than faith in Jesus to please God. The leaders were arguing for a return to certain traditions. So go to Colossians 2.8. Look how Paul responded. Don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking. Verse 9. For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. Verse 10, so you are also complete through your union with Christ. Right there. Right there. Paul encapsulated everything that it means to be a believer. Everything accomplished because of the cross. Single word. Completion. And I'm sure my words can't adequately describe this. I know they can't. What I can say, though, to unpack completion in Christ is that Jesus is everything that God wanted, everything that God required, everything that is right and pleasing to God. He is also all peace, all patience, all joy, all love, all good. When you said yes to Jesus, everything that was wrong about you was replaced with everything about him. Through this union with him, as Paul put it, you were instantly made new, made right, and made whole. As far as God is concerned, you lack nothing. There's nothing left for you to earn. There's nothing left for you to prove. And it means something that was especially freeing for me to see in time. There's nothing left for you to fix. My encounter at the cross was profound. It's what ultimately opened my eyes to God's love and grace, like in a real way. And from that awakening, I continued to discover so much more over a period of years. My growth is evident in the messages I've taught. If you've been with me for a while, you probably can see it. Definitely, it's evident in the books I've written so far. Though I understood quickly that God loved me as I am, and I found my worth in the fact 
that I was made in his image. My understanding of being right and complete in him took longer to develop. I still believe that there was so much about me that God needed to fix, especially if I was going to grow into this long-term promise that I'd been believing for since high school. One of them was my personality. I didn't think an introvert could be a yacker. Many of the other yackers, guest speakers who visited the churches I attended over the years came with stories of how they nearly led the entire airplane to the Lord on the way to the church. And to this day, when a stranger attempts to talk to me on a flight, I'm like, would you please shut up? Of course, I don't say that, but I think it. Now, I care about people, of course, and I love to speak to people in groups. More the better. But I don't enjoy one-on-one interaction with people that I hardly know. And this also means that I usually don't feel all that comfortable praying for people on the spot. And I don't enjoy street evangelism. And for years, I considered all that a major flaw about me that needed to be fixed. I even sometimes wondered, can I even be a Christian and not like to do these things? And I tried to change it about me. But it never really did anything. Never really worked. Now, to be clear, I, I no longer believe that being an introvert is something to be fixed. I think it's one of many God-given traits with which he graces people for a purpose. On the way to me getting there, though, God used this so-called struggle to reveal to me what it means to be complete in Christ, yet also have a weakness in some area. It seems kind of contradictory, doesn't it? But it's not. I mean, we all can relate to having a weakness, right? Even our favorite Bible heroes can, like the Apostle Paul. While Paul developed his theology of what it means to be complete in Christ, as he was getting to the understanding of what he finally shared to the Colossians there, he came to terms with some things about himself that didn't change. In 2 Corinthians 12, he admits moments of weaknesses. He spoke of an obstacle that didn't go away regardless of how much he prayed. I doubt the devil gave him a pass on the insecurities and accusations that he incites in all of us at times. We don't know the extent that Paul grappled with this. We do know, however, that he didn't try to forever fix himself. He concluded that the same grace that saved him is enough to keep him and empower him. When it came to remaining lovable and qualified for God's promises and able to fulfill God's plans. In 2 Corinthians 12, 9, God told him, here's what he relied on. My grace is all you need. I learned from Paul's story that our union with Christ means that he makes up for every area where we fall short. He fills in our gaps and cracks with grace. I think of this like 
Kintsugi pottery. You heard of that? Kintsugi is a Japanese word that means golden repair. Here's a photo of a bowl. Surely seen one of these. Its pieces are mended together by gold. The Japanese like to showcase this art. They don't hide it. They showcase it. They like put it on their shelves as a reflection of their philosophy that strength, beauty, and wholeness come from embracing flaws and imperfections. Whether they know it or not, the Japanese have tapped into a profound biblical truth. We are each clay jars that are born uniquely broken. And the vices of life crack us even further. But we are beautifully restored to wholeness by the redemptive power of the one who has loved us through it all. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that your issues are resolved in a literal sense or that you wouldn't benefit from addressing some of them in practical ways like through diet, counseling, or medicine. I'd benefit from fixing my aversion to vegetables. The thing is, you are not a person in need of fixing to God. You are someone already made whole by the gold of His grace. Please hear me. Jesus accomplished everything that means anything about you. He proved your worth. He made you right. He qualified you for all of God's promises. In Him, you are enough. More than enough, really. So may the Holy Spirit in you help you live in the power of what it means to be enough to God. You know, I just shared about the encounter at the cross that changed everything for me. Like I said, it opened my eyes to see God's love and grace. It set me on a course to discover so much more about his love and grace in ways that literally changed everything for me. I mean, that's what the cross does. That's what God's love, his grace does. It changes everything for people who really get it. You can join me in this encounter. I take you through it in my first book, Silent Satan. There's a chapter in here called Behold the Lamb. I take you to see what I saw. And then for the rest of the book, I show you how to live in the victory of Jesus' finished work. This book here, Silent Satan, is available wherever books are sold. But I'll send you a signed copy if you order it on my website at kylewinkler.org slash silencesatan. That's kylewinkler.org slash silencesatan. Okay, that does it for the Shut Up Devil show. Remember, God is good and he is for you and we're here for you too. Every week on my website at kylewinkler.org, on our podcast, wherever you get your social media. Don't forget wherever you're watching or listening, tap that subscribe or follow button that you never miss a show. See you next time.